Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada's Federal Task Force has two leaders advising on COVID-19, despite having a conflict of interest. We'll talk about the implications of that. An Ipsos poll for Global News finds that Canadians are leery about international travel, even with the hope of a COVID vaccine. It also finds that mental health continues to be a major issue during this pandemic. And power has finally been restored to most of Texas after that Arctic blast. But what are the implications and what's going to happen going forward? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin the program today, I want to talk about something that used to be awfully important uh, for elected officials. Seems not so much anymore, and that's something called conflict of interest. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, There's a a 12-member task force that uh, met to decide whether or not to recommend a particular one of the vaccines, the GSK Sanofi vaccine. Two leaders uh, on there actually had what is perceived to be conflicts of interest, okay? Yet one did recuse themselves, the other did not, and simply said, well, I don't see that that's a problem. And this is happening more and more and more. You may remember uh, we talked a couple of months ago about the uh, inquiry was into long-term care facilities and the problems that were going on there. Uh, and the, the the charge for that committee was supposed to be, well, is private better than public? Uh, as it turned out, the report was actually funded in a large part by one of the private companies. So was that an objective report? And, you know, there's so many other examples of this. So what is happening here? Well, to try to get into this, uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Joel Lechkin, uh, Professor Emeritus with the School of Health Policy and Management and the Faculty of Health at York University. He's also a former consultant to the federal government and the World Health Organization. Uh, Professor, thank you so much. Great to have you with us again today. Thanks for inviting me, Bill. What, uh, are we going to be reminiscing about the days when conflict of interest actually meant something? Um. I would hope so. Well, no, I hope that we're not <laughs> reminiscing. I hope that what we're doing is we're um, going back to a, a position where we were concerned about that. Conflict of interest is a, um, a major problem because it, even if it hasn't um, affected decisions that people have made, um, there's the perception that it might have, and that just erodes confidence in whatever the decisions are. So when we're talking about vaccines, um, there's already vaccine hesitancy in Canada. Um, and if people now are wondering, well, did they actually choose the vaccine on the basis of the science, or did they choose it because they, they've been paid by a company um, or they're on the board of directors of a company, that can just make things worse. The person we're referring to specifically, of course, with this vaccine thing, sure, just for the sake of our listeners, is a Dr. Joanne Langley, uh, who is one of the co-chairs of this committee. She holds a $700,000 research chair at Dalhousie University, which is partly funded by GSK, and has worked at one time with Sanofi uh, on research and as a consultant. Uh, but she decided that there was no conflict there. And uh, your, your point's well taken. Uh, it, I, I know people oftentimes think about, well, is there a monetary gain here? And I know that's part of the definition of conflict of interest. But perception is reality oftentimes when you're trying to look for credibility, isn't it? It certainly is. Um, let me just give you an example of something that your listeners might be able to relate to more easily. So you pick up the, co- you pick up the newspaper and you read a, um, a restaurant review or a resort review, and then you find out that the um, reporter who did the restaurant review was um, got the meal f- for free and was paid by the restaurant or had had a position at the restaurant in the past. 
Well, how likely is it that you're going to um, believe what that reviewer had to say about the quality of the service and the meal? And, and this goes on way too often in situations like this. And again, I, I'm not specifically suggesting that, that Dr. Langley is, is on the take. That's not the inference at all. It's just that she, because of the fact that she sits on a, a chair at Dalhousie, which is funded by a particular company, because she worked for that particular company, uh, there's a perception here, and maybe even a reality, I'm not sure, Professor, that she has a bias toward that company. Yeah, we, um, that's, what you're talking about raises the second issue of concern, which is there are these conflicts of interest that some of the people on the committee have, and then the federal government has not released um, any inf or virtually any information about how what that committee has done. We got, we have um, we know that there are five meetings. We know which vaccines were um, discussed but we don't have any transcripts of the meetings. We don't know how people voted. All that's in the dark. This is in contrast to what goes on, for instance, in the United States. Um, the, there are about a quarter of the drugs that the Food and Drug Administration considers approving goes to um, an advisory committee. Um, that advisory com the membership on that advisory committee is known they, their conflicts of interest are publicly declared. The committee meets in public. You can see what the debate was. You can see how individuals voted. You may not like what the results are, but you have you you know what went on, um, and you can make your own judgments as to whether or not conflicts may have affected the decisions that were made here in Canada as, with this vaccine advisory committee. None of that's possible. And, and again, there's, there's an inference here that, that I think I, I find bothersome. I'm, I'm hoping a lot of other people do as they start to explain what's going on here. And you raise something that, uh, again, you know, just as we're concerned about the lack of, 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 of credibility when it comes to this, it, the other word that we talk about constantly in situations like this, of course, Professor, is transparency. And it seems to be lacking. It's lacking in government decisions about how we're dealing with COVID and vaccines. And when these panels are appointed, they meet behind closed doors, and we hear nothing except the final report, I guess, but we don't know what the discussion was like. We don't know what was being considered. You don't know the comments. I mean, I, as somebody who's eventually going to roll my sleeve up and, and get a, an injection for this, i kind of like to know how we got to this point. Um, I think everybody who, um, everybody in Canada would, would like to know because um, although the vaccine isn't a silver bullet, it's one of the key ways that we're going to um, get over this and return to some semblance of normality. normalcy. And, um, and as I said earlier, there, unfortunately, there's vaccine hesitancy. People think that it's been developed too quickly, that it's being made by big drug companies and big, big drug companies sign deals with the devil. Um, and now when you, you've got this lack of information um, out there, that just feeds into all of this. And I think that it can make more people um, wonder if the vaccine is the right thing for them. Um, I certainly hope not, um, because I work as an, uh, as an emergency physician, and the more people who get the vaccine, the easier my job is. It, it when we hear stories like this, though, it, it starts to lead us down this road that money talks. 
you know, and, and, and I'm glad that there was money available to do research at universities. That's great uh, because governments, of course, have cut back an awful lot, and you're looking to private sector to try to fill that gap. And so I understand the, the complex situation that universities are in these days. But in the case, let's use this case of Dalhousie University, which uh, has, is funded not to a large part, but, I mean, GSK puts a lot of money into the R&D department there. Uh, if I'm a, a, an individual in your field that says, you know, I think GSK is awful. I think it's a terror. I'm not going to get a job at Dalhousie. I mean, let's let's cut to the quick here. You know, they they, they don't want to tick off the people that are writing the checks right now, and it happens for every university. We talked last week about a number of Canadian universities that are getting an awful lot of money from Huawei, and that's being sanctioned by the Canadian government. So, those that are saying, well, how come Canada is not getting tough with China? Because the money's coming this way, and, and I know it's cynical, and I, I don't want to be that cynical. But boy, the the evidence here seems to be overwhelming that money does have an influence on how some people decide to make their decisions or what they might want to endorse. Money is is always important. Um, <clears throat> back in the 1930s, there was an American, <clears throat> American bank robber named Willie Sutton, and so the story mm-hmm. goes, and they may or may not be true, but um, after he was caught, one of the, um, one of the reporters um, came up to Willie and said, hey, Willie, why do you rob banks? And Willie said, that's where the money is. Um, money is always important. Um, I was part of a group um, a few years ago that looked into um, the results and conclusions of clinical trials. These are the studies that are done in humans about new drugs um, or new devices and what we, we were looking at whether or not the, the source of the funding for these trials made a difference in the results and conclusions. And what we found out was that if the, um, if the source of money came from the company that was making the device or the drug, then the conclusions and the results were more likely to be positive than if the money came from anywhere else, government, charities, hospitals, universities, what have you. So money seems to make a difference, and we always have to be worried about that. The problem here, and if we wanted to be more transparent about that, there's that word again, uh, it it goes all the way back to the beginning and the formation of of who was going to be allowed to be on this committee. Uh, That's where I think the vetting process should have occurred, and and somebody obviously didn't do that or just figured it wasn't important. But did you not have that same job with a a similar panel that was in Australia? They asked for for your opinion on, on how this committee was to be structured and who actually was going to sit on it? Um, yes, there was a, um, the Australian Medical Research Council formed a committee to give it advice as to whether or not people should sit on a, um, an advisory committee making recommendations about various things with respect to the, um, to COVID-19. So, um, how people should be treated. Um, what kind of drugs might or may not be effective, whether or not they should buy particular kinds of equipment. And they reached out to four people, including me, who had had a long history of dealing with conflict of interest. They asked us, they sent us a draft um, version of their policy. They asked us for comments. We gave them comments. They Then after that, they would have been asking um, should so-and-so sit on this committee, here are her po- conflict of interest, 
we look at this and then we give them results and all of this gets published, including the policy that we, um, we came up with. Um, all of that's on a website that you can have a look at. But that's how the process should work. And, and I don't think anybody for one minute is not suggesting that Dr. Langley or the other co-chair, of course, Mark Levin, uh, are not eminently qualified with their, their expertise in this. But uh, one works for an entity, Dalhousie University, that is funded in large part by this company. Uh, Mr. Lennon is a former president of the company. Uh, so there's, <laughs> again, you'd, you'd like to think if you're going to do evaluations on this that you're going to have somebody, uh, I guess everybody on that panel anyway, should have an objective point of view here as opposed to actually going in there with a predetermined idea as to which way they're going to go. Yeah, I think that that's a, um, a key key point. So the committee itself, the people who do the actual voting, um, should not have conflicts. That doesn't mean that other people with conflicts shouldn't be listened to. So this committee could have had its meetings, preferably in public. They could have invited um Mr. Livonen or Dr. Langley to come and give them their opinions, give them their points of view on things, listen to them, question them. But then the committee, it's the people who are making the actual recommendations should be people without conflicts. I mean, if this was jury selection, Professor... Uh, and you were you were a potential jury, and they said, "Okay, uh, Doctor Lechin, uh, do you know the accused?" Well, yeah, actually, I worked for him. <laughs> You're excused right off the bat. They don't say, "Oh, I'm sure you'll have an un unbiased opinion." Right off the bat, the perception is there, and they make a decision on that. You wonder where was that step in this process? Um, you certainly do. I mean, in fact, what if you look at the government website? The government actually says that they that they deliberately went out and looked for people with conflicts of interest because they wanted people with the best um, knowledge about these. But not, the position that I take, and that's taken by a lot of other people, is that there are, a, that there are people out there who are eminently qualified, who don't have conflicts, and that those are the people you should be going after. Well, exactly. And, and again, no, nobody's questioning the CV of either one of these individuals. And your point's well taken. I think both of them w would have made expert uh, experts to come and, and testify before the committee and give their expert opinions on this, but not to vote on it. And, and actually, to his credit, uh, actually, Mr. Lavonin, of course, who was the former president, uh, did ex recuse himself from the actual voting. Uh, Dr. Langley did not. But it shouldn't have got to that point. That, that's the point I think we're trying to make here is uh, – you know, this is the government has to be much more strict about this. Of course, I guess we have to put this in context. This is the same government that was involved in the Wee scandal too, and that, uh, so I think we get a pretty good idea where they are with conflict of interest. But uh, this is even more important, though, because this is a vaccine. This is uh, supposedly one of the major tools we're going to use to try to battle this pandemic, uh, and you just want to make sure that all the T's are dotted and the I's are crossed, or the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, rather, in situations like that. And there's a lot of questions as a result. There are, um, and I don't know that we're actually going to get answers to a lot of these questions. I don't think that we're going to see um, the, it, transcripts of the meetings that people had. I don't think we're going to see individual voting patterns. This is a, um, a situation that um, has existed for quite a long time when it comes to um, government advisory committees. They... Um, there's no um, clear criteria for who gets appointed, 
that's done private or that's done out of the sight of the public. Um, and while you may be able to find out um, in general terms whether or not people had conflicts of interest, you don't see um, you don't see transcripts of meetings, you don't see voting patterns. Um, so you don't really you're left in the dark as to whether or not conflicts of interest had a um, a role in what was being decided. Well, we uh, need to shine the light on this, and I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this, uh, as always, Doctor. Thank you so much for this. Stay well, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks very much, and the same to you. Stay out of trouble. <laughs> I can't promise that, but I'll try to stay healthy anyway. Uh, Dr. Right. Joel Letchkin, <laughs> from uh, uh, Emeritus Professor, of course, uh, with uh, York University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. How are you doing? I mean, we're heading up a 12 months now that we've been into lockdown and pandemic situations, and it's uh, it's taking a toll. We know it's taking a toll, obviously, from a public health standpoint and an economic standpoint. We've talked about that at great length, of course, on the program. Uh, but it's also taking an individual toll on each and every one of us. And uh, our good friends at uh, Ipsos Public Affairs have done some national polling on that. Uh, Global's Jeff Smith has some of those details. For many people, it's not getting better. 56% surveyed between February 8th and 10th say they are experiencing stress or anxiety. That's up a point from November. The sentiment is strongest in Atlantic Canada and the Saskatchewan-Manitoba region. It's lowest and getting better in Quebec and B.C. 44% say their mental health is in bad shape. That number is 61% among those aged 18 to 34. 44% say the current restrictions are affecting their mental state more than the first shutdown last spring. Is distancing making us feel lonely or isolated? Well, 54% of Canadians surveyed say yes it is, up from 45% last November. And there's one other concern. 16% say they are struggling with addiction more than before the pandemic. Jeff Smith, Global News. Just about every facet of our lives, of course, is being impacted by this. To try to uh, get some clarity on this, uh, so pleased to welcome Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs, to the program. Sean, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us. Hope you're doing well these days. I am. Thanks for asking. This is a pretty crappy time of year anyway. I mean, pandemic yeah. or no pandemic, you know, we all know about the sad seasonal affected disorder. We don't get much sunshine. You're getting tired of the snow. I'm tired of shoveling the driveway. On and on it goes. But, you know, getting locked up in your house, uh, you know, social isolation and everything else. Uh, these numbers that you guys found, they're really not surprising, are they? No, they're not surprising, but uh, it doesn't sort of lessen their their impact. You know, we, we see a lot of people... Um, struggling uh, throughout these these winter months, and uh, as was noted, you know those in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Atlantic Canada are, are feeling more stress and anxiety. And I think that's because the, the the first wave wasn't as bad for them, and now the second wave, no one's really escaped that, and so they're they're dealing with maybe some of these lockdowns and and um, and safety precautions uh, for the first time in many parts of the of the country, at least to, to this to this degree, and and it's really impacting people. We see younger people. Uh, really starting to to deteriorate because of not being able to do anything we see older people deteriorating because they're they're having no contact with um uh, with with other people and uh, and and as a result i think many are, are are seeking solace in in other remedies and that's why we're seeing so many say that they're struggling more with uh, with addiction issues 
And, and therein lies the, the problem, I guess, and it, that social distancing, I'm just looking at some of the numbers here, uh, really seems to jump out. I, you know, a year ago when we talked about this, I think the biggest concern an awful lot of people had was, was their public health. You know, God, I don't want to yeah. catch this thing. It's, it's terrible. I, we can suck this up for a little while. We can do this as long as we're going to flatten the curve. Yeah. And here we are 12 months later and say, it, this, is, this is tough. I mean, we are social beings. And, and to not be able to do that and, and, you know, to social distance and not be able to see close friends and family members for that matter too it's starting to take its toll, isn't it yeah that's right the back in the in, in the winter in the spring of last year uh people largely saw COVID 19 as a threat to to the economy to finances you know people losing their jobs and 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 the economy slowing as a result um and then the summer came and it was hey it wasn't actually too bad and all those mortgage deferrals everybody was getting worried about and we found that actually most people took those out because it just does an insurance policy you know just in case something happened to them financially and economically and it, and it never did now we're seeing that the, the true pandemic may actually be mental health uh where we're having a bit of a pandemic within a pandemic and the government and, and other support systems have, have done a good job at mitigating the you know, the financial impact of COVID-19 with with the the wage subsidy and and the, the CERB and, and now being morphed into EI, but what hasn't been addressed very well is the mental health ramifications, and and, and those may be lingering. I'm always interested when we talk with this, the surveys that you guys do about the regional disparities. Uh, different parts of the country seem to have different impacts on this. And and you mentioned Saskatchewan and Manitoba uh, right now. Uh, Atlantic Canada, the reason the numbers, I guess, jump out there is because they were actually pretty good a, a few months ago, and they seem to be succumbing to this now, too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there really isn't a region of the of the country that is uh, sort of escaped the the second round of, of lockdowns. You know, interestingly, the 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 region that says that they're experiencing the least amount of stress or anxiety is is Quebec, uh, and they've been um, one of the hardest hit uh, regions. But you know, you also tend to get used to things as well. So the regions experiencing more anxiety are the ones where the the, the troubles have been more recent. Uh, those uh, who are experiencing less anxiety maybe getting used to it because they had such a a significant problem in the first wave or uh, maybe had the peak of the second wave a little earlier than others well and i don't want to delve too deeply into the political weeds here but because you're right the numbers indicate that quebec is is actually one of the ones that was hardest hit by this but to to the credit of of premier legault and others they've addressed an awful lot of the concerns that people would have uh, you know about compensation for people that are off work they have paid days off that that's a debate we're having in ontario right now i don't know if that's ever going to get resolved uh they they did a huge huge amount of work to try to improve their long-term care uh problems that uh, that they had and everybody's around the country have so that that alleviates i guess some of the stress anyway sean for people that just you know it, it, we're getting piled on here and at least that government's addressing some of those and that takes a little bit of the heat off yeah, they seem to have taken action, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Yeah. You know, they were among the first to get the schools opened again, and then I think they had to sort of compensate. But but they seem to be taking action, and the, and, the, and Premier Legault's uh, approval rates are quite quite strong in Quebec as a result. And then you have other jurisdictions like Ontario, where, let, let me be clear, Doug Ford's approval ratings are stronger than the Prime Minister's are with oh, yeah. in Ontario. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, there, it, a lot of times it's seen as, as, as two steps forward, one steps back. With the you know opening of schools, maybe reopening of the economy a little bit earlier than um, than many might have have wanted, given the new variants and the and the concern about a, a third wave that that might uh, might come upon us as, as a result. So um, you know a lot of this this um, uh, uncertainty feeds into the the pre existing anxieties that that many people already have. 
and and by the way, one of the great things about Ipsos, of course, is these are very current. I understand any poll is just a snapshot, but but this is how people are feeling just around now. And, uh, you know, just around the time, I guess, that you did your polling here, Sean, is around the time that people are starting to hear about the possibility of even a third wave now because of these variants. But uh, if you were feeling kind of miserable before, you get that kind of news. You just kind of, in the back of your mind, there's got to be this little voice that's saying, is this ever going to end? Yeah, that coupled with the delays that we're experiencing yeah. in Canada with the distribution of the, of the vaccine, and, and the prime minister is now starting to wear it. His his approval ratings are down six points in the last uh, in the last month, and Canadians have been forced to uh, reassess what their year looks like. For example, um, uh, only about twenty percent of Canadians say that they would be comfortable traveling internationally uh, by by the end of the year, and and that's that's down significantly from where it was just a couple of months ago when we assessed because um, Canadians are saying, wow, Jesus, if, uh, if, if we're not going to be vaccinated by the end of September, like the prime minister has been, has been promising, what does that mean for travel? What does it mean for being able to, to go to all the, the summer uh, festivals and events? Uh, what does it mean for re-engagement in the economy? All of these things now look like they're being pushed back to 2023. Well, sure, because that's how we rationalized it last March, wasn't it? Yeah, okay, there's not going to be a baseball season, uh, yeah. but next year, we'll be back in the ballpark next yeah. year, or CFL or whatever it's going to be. And now we're, eh, they're playing, uh, but, but I, you know, we can't get in there. That's that's kind of the frustration. But I'm glad you brought up the travel aspect because there's so many different facets to that, and, and you touched on a lot of them with the survey, you know, connecting all the dots on this. There is still a great deal of apprehension from people, that even though, you know, planes are flying, uh, you know, albeit uh, there are some you know social distance restrictions on the planes themselves and everything uh but I, I get the sense from your numbers here that people still feel a little uneasy about getting on a plane with somebody who we know they've all tested uh, negative that's how they got on the plane in the first place yeah. but just the same it's out there and we don't quite know you know whether it's it's totally safe to be on that plane yeah and and i'm not even necessarily so sure that it's about the the plane i mean that's a factor but uh, we also, um, you know, know that it, it, it's travel internationally that we've that we've asked about, and so I think people are saying, "Well, I, I'm going to a different country. I don't know what the rules are there. I don't know how seriously they're taking COVID-19. I don't know how quickly they're able to roll out the vaccination. It just introduces another series of unknowns, another series of things that you personally can't control. And as a result of that, a lot of people are saying." Look, it's not going to happen. And in fact, we've got roughly uh, 40% of the population who's looking even further beyond 2022 and saying it's going to be 2023 or later, or 17% of the population. That is, that's like 5 million Canadian adults. 17% of the population says that they will never again feel comfortable traveling internationally. Wow. Uh, there are some, though, that do. Uh, as a matter of fact, some that have traveled uh, regardless of what the government has said not to do in the stay-at-home order, etc. And uh, there is, a, as you know, an element of the population that do that, the snowbirds and others, yeah. that feel as if the government is really dumping all over them now because of some of the restrictions, the quarantine restrictions, etc., etc. Boy, this uh, survey that you guys did here, Sean, pretty much said there's not a whole lot of sympathy for those yeah. people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty categorical. Look, Canadians have been, been um, quite supportive of the travel restrictions that the Prime Minister has uh, has rolled out, border closures, etc. In fact, when he announced the newest round of restrictions, I think a lot of Canadians said, what took you so long? Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, there, there's not a lot of sympathy for snowbirds. The prevailing belief is that 
you know, they knew the situation before they left, and now now they're crying foul because uh, the government has, has has you know changed things again. Um, I think there's a little bit of of uh, maybe uh, jealousy, a little bit of class warfare here. Going <laughs> well, you can afford to go away for the month or do a second home, then surely you can afford two thousand dollars at a hotel. But you know, there's there's a there's a flip side here, and that is that a lot of the snowbirds are, are getting away not just because they want to, but because many have to. You know, many have uh, you know asthma that doesn't do well in the in in, in the cold. Uh, many have other conditions and, and mental health conditions where they, they really need to, to, to escape for the winter. But even so, many people who, who have those needs are still not able and not, not able uh, to, to afford to do that. So it's a very difficult situation, but Canadians are saying, look, we're in this together. We all need to be staying home right now. Yeah, and that's amazing. And I was surprised at those numbers, frankly, because, you know, we've heard the huge hue and cry about the restrictions and it's not fair and it's costing too much to go to a hotel. And, you know, why can't we go over to this country? Why can't we do that? But Canadians have been pretty supportive of a lot of the restrictions. Uh, and that's pretty been pretty consistent right through the, la- the pandemic, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it has been. And, and one of the really interesting things here is that you might think that baby boomers, other people over the age of 55, are sort of most sympathetic, sympathetic to the to the plight of, of snowbirds. But in fact, the opposite of true. It's younger people who are more likely to say, well, maybe we should give them, a, you know, an exemption because the rules changed while they were away. Older people are saying, tough, get back here and start your quarantine and, and, and write that check. One of the other stories about this, and, and one of the, the darker sides, of course, to the to the social distancing and the isolation that we're been practicing for quite some time, uh, is the is the concern about addiction, and and that can be a pretty serious problem. And you address that as well. That's right. Uh, what we're seeing is that uh, close to close to two in ten uh, Canadians, look at sixteen percent, say that uh, they are struggling more with uh, with addiction. Uh, issues such as alcohol or drugs more than they did before the before the pandemic, and uh, as you might expect, uh, there are some demographic differences there as well with young people, those under the age of thirty five, so those millennials and, and Gen Zs who are the most likely to say they're struggling with addiction issues. It's twenty four percent. That's one in four. Uh, so th- that is a um, uh, a stark finding, uh, and uh, you know, it, when, once you have an addiction issue, it doesn't go away simply because COVID nineteen has been addressed. So even once everybody's vaccinated, even once we've we've managed to, to scrub COVID nineteen out of our our daily lexicon, um, some of these challenges are going to remain, and we're going to have to figure out what to do about them. Well, yeah, and that's uh, part of the long-lasting concern about this, too. And it just seems to be a general, uh, is when's this going to be over attitude right now? And there was, a, I think, a lot of concern, but, you know, we, you know we're Canadians, we can do this attitude about eight or nine months ago. And we're starting to get to the point where we're looking for that light at the end of the tunnel right now and uh, getting pretty frustrated by this. And I think the numbers that you guys have shown uh, with this latest polling indicates that that seems to be the case right now. Uh, but how do, how do governments, so let's, let's take this data now, is, is this a, a report that you, you'd like to see governments look at and, and, and at least consider when they're deciding on policies? Oh, sure. Um, ab- absolutely. And the, I think we, the prime minister's office is, is uh, probably following all of the all of the polls and, and putting together briefing for, for leaders. Um, I, I think, 
you know, they, they need to be aware of the mental health problems that are that are existing. Um, they need to be aware that uh, the prime minister may be setting expectations a little bit high by doubling down on his uh, assurances that everybody's going to be vaccinated by the end of September. If that doesn't come to fruition, which seems increasingly likely with each passing uh, delay, each passing day and mounting delay, I should say, uh, then, um, you know, Canadians are, are going to be judging him harshly. Um, I think that the, the more expedient strategy here would be to moderate expectations, demonstrate what you're doing to keep things moving forward, but give yourself an opportunity to at least meet them, if not uh, if not exceed them. Otherwise, uh, I think Canadians will, um, uh, will be having a harsh uh, look and critique of the Prime Minister's performance of the vaccine rollouts when it comes uh, time to the next election. Well, the, the word that we kept using, and I know I talked to Daryl about this a couple of weeks ago with one of your other polls, too, is, is there's got to be transparency from the government. Mm. One of the reasons I think there's so much apprehension right, and, and angst about this is we don't know what goes into the decisions these guys make. And, you know, we look around. I mean, no, we, we, we don't. We, we may be isolating, but we don't live in isolation. I just I can turn on CNN or, you know, Global or anything else and find out how Israel's doing this, how somebody else is doing this, and we're saying wait a second, they're, they're not locking everybody down like this, and they're getting better results. What, what went into this decision? And we just don't know. And, and that you know, the lack of information, the lack of clarity on the stuff like that makes a frustrating situation worse. Yeah, a lot of times our leaders are just saying, well, based on the recommendation of public health experts, Hmm. Well, we didn't actually hear them say that. Yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, a little more transparency and that would be helpful. But you're right. Canadians have access to a lot of other information and they're seeing things are going a lot better uh, in terms of rolling out the vaccination in places like Israel, the UK, and the US, which, you know, we smugly were looking at at our friends south of the border <laughs> saying, how could you, um, you know, screw up this badly? How could you let COVID run so rampant throughout your population? Uh, and now, uh, you know, we're looking out, uh, on them with some envy uh, with regards to how quickly they're able to uh, roll out the vaccination across the country. So a little bit of, of um, humble introspection might be in order for us here <laughs> in Canada. And, uh, and certainly one of the things that we're going to have to address in the future is ensuring that we have our own domestic vaccination production capabilities. Canadians are really surprised to learn that we don't. Uh, and that appears to be, uh, you know, hurting us, biting us where, where it hurts uh, because uh, our, our vaccination efforts are slower as a result. As a result, it is absolutely very frustrating. Uh, always a pleasure, Sean, to get you guys in here and to, and to get an idea of just where Canadians are thinking right now. Thanks so much for the time today. It's been my pleasure. Take care. Sean Simpson, of course, the Vice President of uh, Ipsos Public Affairs uh, for the, the, these national surveys. And, and like I say, it's a snapshot, and I think it paints a picture right now that we're getting a little tired of, of what's going on. And his point's well taken. I think a, a lot of the angst is because of the vaccine program and, and just how they have stumbled out of the gate here. And, uh, you know, we've seen other countries get back up and get it going again. Uh, and by the way, to his point, uh, there was a time when we did actually have that kind of production here in Canada. Uh, but previous governments, uh, well, they dropped the ball, as frankly. I think it was the Mulroney government that actually had cannot laboratories here in Canada that was actually a world leader, but uh, they privatized it. He sold it. It was a, a government agency that they sold. And that goes on and on and on. Uh, that's in the rearview mirror, and you can't do much about it now, but maybe we've learned from those mistakes. At least we hope we have anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's going on in Texas right now. T terrible, terrible stuff. You've seen the videos, of course. Uh, you know, we thought we got snow last week, and we did, but nothing like uh, what happened down in Texas. I mean, it, it drove Ted Cruz out of the state, right? 
But power has been restored now to most of Texas after a powerful Arctic blast last week left millions without electricity and water. Now the residents face a new crisis, a critical shortage of drinking water and bare shelves. Global's Jennifer Johnson reports. Today in Texas, the power is back on for most people, but millions are facing a new crisis, a critical shortage of drinking water and food. A powerful Arctic blast last week cracked pipes, froze wells, wind turbines, and knocked water treatment plants offline. Thousands who went with variable rates for their power bills are now facing staggering bills. The governor is promising there will be investigations into why a deep freeze plunged Texas into chaos. And he's promising power generators will be winterized to prevent future cold weather outages. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington. Yeah, it's it's a real terrible situation there, and and we understand that you know when this kind of wicked weather, especially winter weather, uh, affects a lot of those southern states, they're just not prepared for it. I mean, it does get cold, and they do have snow from time to time, but nothing like that, and it's just been terrible. But what it has also done, which I find somewhat surprising, it's it's uh, created a debate about future energy plans right now. Uh, people on opposite sides of the energy debate here in North America are starting to lay claim to the storm here and say, see what this shows you? It just validates my point of view. Uh, to try to make some sense out of all this, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program our good friend Dan McTeague. Dan, of course, is president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. He's a former MPP and a uh, gas buddy and a guy who's uh, given us direction so many times when we talk about things uh, to do with the energy sector. Dan, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm doing fantastic and glad the snow's finally stopped outside. Oh, God, yes, please. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this, I, again, you know, I'm shocked and, and surprised that politicians would actually use a crisis like this for political gain. Uh, I, I say that tongue in cheek, of course. Uh, but you've seen the tweets over the weekend. Uh, on the one side, you've got uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott say, that's that green energy stuff. That's what let us down. You know, those things don't work, and, and that's why we don't have power. And you've got uh, Andrea, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, OAC, on the other side, tweeting that uh, this infrastructure failure uh, quite says, you know, tells us quite frankly, of course, that a new Green Deal is absolutely essential. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the truth is somewhere in the middle here. I mean, that, that's the way things go. Uh, what, what, what do you make of what's going on here? And, the, and the, now the political debate about where we're going to go f- forward on this. Bill, I should have a blog ready in about an hour trying to put through all the pieces. Of course, I, I am not uh, the be-all, end-all in terms of what's happened because I, while doing, writing about this in the past, I have to keep my eye focused on what we're looking at. Uh, if oil pops up to 70 bucks a barrel, another 10 bucks, it means 10 cents a liter for all of us here. Mm-hmm. Look, we're Canadians. We have been through these difficult times before, but you know, whether it's ice storms or whether it happens to be hurricanes in the East Coast uh, that we saw two years ago, We've been able to weather them because Canada has a diversity of, uh, of energy. And I think that's really important here. No matter where you're coming from, I think we all probably have to agree that, uh, you know, most of us don't want to see what's happening in Texas. Uh, Texans don't want to see this as their future. And I think if you consider that uh, you have to have a mix of uh, electricity, you have to have a mix of natural gas, uh, heating oil, uh, nuclear, uh, all of those things are right at our fingertips here in Ontario. And to try to uh, suggest that we should go in one way, I think uh, certainly as it demonstrates here in terms of electricity, uh, is really a case study in what not to do. Uh, and of course, there's all sorts of other discussions we can have around two types of, uh, of markets that uh, Texas, because the surrounding states aren't seeing quite the same devastation. They didn't put uh, their, themselves in a situation where they only reward energy pricing versus capacity pricing. Now, the difference between the two is simple. 
you have, uh, you know, you, uh, you increase the amount of uh, production of electricity, of which 60, 65% of Texans rely on for heat, as an example, you want to make sure that you have those backed up by natural gas. Texas didn't do that. And it's for that reason that they had, you know, when, they, when the call came up, this is worse than anything we've seen in a very long time. Uh, they didn't have the reserve. They didn't have the backup. And as a result, because Texas really has a, a, a far huge footprint on the rest of the country, in fact, North America, uh, it really means that, you know, 40% of oil production has been knocked out. It means that uh, all of us are going to pay, not necessarily in terms of supply disruption, but certainly pay when it comes to our energy costs uh, overall. But what it really means to me is that this is, uh, I think for us, uh, a lesson in not in what not to do. And no matter where you are in the political spectrum, no matter you know if you're boosting oil or boosting green energy, I think uh, most minds today would probably confirm that the way we have it here in Ontario in Canada may be the best way to go. And let's be honest, uh, Texas saw bad weather in 2011, and they saw it again in 2014. So perhaps uh, you know we have to get used to the idea in North America. Contrary to the narrative, we're not getting warmer. We have warm summers. We have cold winters. And uh, we are seeing uh, patterns that uh, would suggest uh, that we want to be resilient to all of those kind of uh, changes. Sure. And, and we know there's climate change. We know that's going on and we need to prepare for this. But there's a couple of anomalies about this one, too, especially I'm glad you brought up about the, the, the Texas situation because it is unique, isn't it, Dan? Uh, they actually have their own separate electric grid uh, yep. from the rest of the United States, uh, which was something that was set up some time ago. Uh, the cynics would say so, so they could avoid federal regulations. Uh, and and maybe, maybe that came home to roost with what happened last week, of course, uh, because not just uh, Governor Abbott, but Governor Perry before him. Uh, basically, they were climate deniers, still are, I guess, to a certain extent, and did not follow through with what you just talked about, about backups, etc. They just figured, you know what, fossil fuels are the way that that's what built this great state, and that's what we're going to do, and we're to help with everything else. Now, they, they were not the only voice, but they didn't have a backup plan, and they were not ready for this. Yeah, Bill, I think it comes down to not wanting to spend the money. I mean, Texas, as we all know, the Lone Star State is fiercely independent, and it didn't do something that other states do, and that's called intertie, so that you are connected, and you can rely on your neighbor, and your neighbor can do the same in difficult situations, and that uh, interconnectedness throughout the Southwest would allow you know you to get energy supply three states over. I'm not suggesting that you know all of these things that I'm you know that I'm putting forward are uh, are going to be ultimately the reasons why, but uh, look, Texas has made a big deal in the past 10 years about increasing its renewables. Uh, 60% of its renewables, sorry, 80% of its renewables uh, is now found in, uh, in, in, uh, in windmills. And those are great technologies. But as we see here in Ontario, uh, when we built those windmills, uh, we also made sure that we had natural gas backup, uh, natural gas plants backing things up, which kind of makes it odd that 14 cities in Ontario, have been calling on the Ontario government to uh, abandon that and to somehow hope and pray we can get the electricity via Quebec. I think those 14 cities or municipalities, including yours, Hamilton, uh, St. Catharines, I'm thinking here of Kitchener, uh, there are other communities that I'm off the top of my head, Guelph, Windsor. You may want to think and look before you leap now because doing such a thing uh, could have disastrous consequences. And now I'm not so much concerned about energy. I think mean, it's important. But my goodness, you know, Bill, as you're, uh, you know, as, as you started this uh, this interview, drinking water is now threatened because they yep. can't get electricity to generate uh, the pumps and to, to clean the, uh, the 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 sewage and treat the water. To me, it seems that uh, we have to sort of 
dial back a little bit on this. We have to go down this green road, uh, damn the torpedoes, because I now I think we now see that uh, the climate is never going to be stable. It never has been. It never will be. And we can argue about why that is that is the case. But we can't argue about our ability to be resilient in the sense that here in North America, here in Canada, we seem to have it right. And I think the Americans are starting to realize you can't, as, it, as I said earlier, you can't put all your energy eggs in one basket. And that's the thing that I think, well, you and I have talked about this over the past. It, it's awfully frustrating where this becomes a polarized debate. And and you're right, I know Windsor, the city of Windsor is one of these cities that seems to be kicking up a fuss. But I tell you, you yeah. as you know, Dan, if you drive down the 401 towards Windsor, you go past this humongous wind farm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you, and uh, you know, for the number of years we've been going up to Blue Mountain and Collingwood, uh, you go up through Shelburne, and again, this huge windmill farm. Uh, that's that's on the grid. That's helping. And, and we can't pretend that that's not a fact. But on the other hand, uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, going to start embracing the Leap Manifesto that some NDP members <laughs> say. It's just, let's stop this fossil fuel stuff altogether. That's the future. There's got to be a balance here. Yeah, I think there is a balance. You know, we want to make sure that we have backup. And I think that's clearly what's going to come out of Texas, no matter where you come on this. You also want to make sure that you protect affordability. And I think in the case of Ontario, we haven't. I mean, our government is incurring $6.5 billion every year to pay for the Green Energy Act. Uh, to pay for those windmills that are selling energy uh, for 20, 30 cents a kilowatt hour, driving up our costs, but at the same time, creating un- an unnecessary volume of, uh, of electricity that we're now spilling over and selling to Michigan for one cent or for, you know, pennies on the dollar, as it were, and you and I are subsidizing that. So I think we have to be very careful. I mean, it's good to be trendy. It's good to jump on the latest fad, and it's good to want to be seen as responsible. But that also requires that we be realistic about our energy approaches. And I I, for one, think that uh, the, the real reason that I came back into this issue and stopped working at Gas Buddy doing international media, especially in the United States, was there seems to be in all of this uh, a willingness to exchange reliability and affordability, which are two very strong, powerful, compelling reasons why we have such a strong standard of living here in Canada, why we are an enviable place to be. We want to be responsible. But we can't, you know, sort of stick our heads in the sand and say uh, by building an extra few windmills and solar panels, we can somehow resolve the problem, especially the bulk needs. And, of course, Bill, you, know, you and I are sitting smack dab in the middle of the two, two greatest inventions that are clean energy. Nuclear, where my riding used to be in Pickering, uh, yep. Darlington, and, of course, in the Bruce. And down the road, the Adam Beck, they, you know, we were the first ones to use Tesla, Tesla's technologies to ensure that we would have clean, adequate uh, you know, reliable sources of energy. And so, again, we didn't put all our eggs in one basket. We've been able to diversify our energy offerings. Let's keep it that way. Let's be mindful of our, our responsibilities. But I think Texas, as California was last summer, we can't go down this road of green energy and putting uh, ourselves at uh, significant risk, brownouts, blackouts. That's a retrograde step backwards. Well, and, you know, the, the point here is that, look, at, at you know, AOC may be right at some point in the future, but not yet. Uh, and 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 I'd like to think that President yeah. Biden is is going to be that kind of a moderate. And again, I'm getting the sense from some of his comments that that, that that's where they're going to go. And I'm not suggesting that you always compromise. I mean, you have sure. to have standards and you have to have principles. Uh, and and energy, renewable energy certainly is is absolutely has to be a priority for us as well as them. But you're right, cost has to be, uh, and affordability has to be part of that discussion too. And and here in Ontario, the past couple of governments we've had that that committed to this didn't seem to consider that. They simply said, look, at it, it's going to hurt, but in the long run, it's going to be better for you. I, I'm not so sure it had to hurt. No, and I think consumers, uh, unfortunately, are rarely taken into consideration uh, when these folks sit around tables and make, you know, 
significant decisions. Unfortunately, policymakers. I mean, it took me 20 years to figure out the gasoline and petroleum industry. Uh, you know, you have municipal, provincial, federal politicians uh, acting as scientists uh, and making coming to very quick, snappy conclusions by organizations who are often tax-funded by the very folks, the public officials, making decisions that have long-term implications. And I think what we are looking at is uh, the need to be uh, more careful uh, in the way in which we approach this. And this is what does concern me about, you know, blanketing the world with saying, well, we have to, we have to uh, punish Canada. We can't sell natural gas to China, so they'll stop uh, uh, building uh, coal plants. Uh, we punish ourselves. We'll build, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll plant two billion more trees. Not that the, the other 300 billion that we already have don't have enough company, but at the all, at the end of all of this, I think we have to be very careful. Our public officials need to be more studious and spend a bit more time doing the research. And those who are advising them, these are the staffers. I've worked once as a staffer. The uh, administrative uh, uh, officials for various municipalities do the homework. You've got the resources. Don't just take one side of this particular story because at the end of all this, we have an obligation to our ratepayers, to our constituents, to people, not to simply bureaucrats or the latest, you know, strong organization out there advocating for its own reasons. I, I, I don't uh, blame them, but when I see large corporations making uh, millions, billions, if not, on credit markets and pushing the green agenda, uh, you're, you're literally pushing us back to where we were in 2008, where you're making money based on nothing. And of course, I want to make sure that uh, we have policies that are both balanced but also take into consideration that Canada is a leader when it comes to clean energy, clean technology, and we shouldn't be uh, demonizing our fossil fuel industry. We are the world leader when it comes to clean energy, and if uh, that isn't good enough, we can prepare to expect more types of problems that we've seen in Texas. Well, exactly, and and we have to be as as consumers practical about this too. I mean, you know, I gotta go. I I, I don't want to go pay a buck twenty a liter for gas when I you know, will finish be. here today. <laughs> but yeah, five, oh, yeah, it's one nineteen seven or something around the corner from me here. But I but I get it uh, because of the conversations I've had with you over the years. Look at the price of the the global price of oil has gone up, which is actually good for the economy. That's a good thing, uh, you know, because when it's depressed like that, there's a, there's a whole lot, series of of ramifications to that too. And I think it sucks that I'm paying it, but I understand yeah. why I'm paying it. And uh, it's it's we have to have that big picture thing. We can't just say, you know, well, all I'm thinking about is me. Well, the renewables are all made with uh, oil, whether we like it or not. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think there's a balancing act. I think, and I think we've got it right here in Canada. But I, uh, you know, if we overkill with this idea that we have to electrify everything, uh, we may very well wind up in a situation where we not only can't afford things, we're going to see a devolution of, uh, of investments in this country. How are we going to pay for social programs? I mean, the, the, the idea here is to be more effective, more efficient not shut down the very things that have worked for us. And uh, I think natural gas is probably, in a, you know, I don't know the industry as, as well. I don't certainly have never taken them on directly as I have the oil companies. Uh, but I think natural gas uh, is signal of, of, of a very promising future, including the fact that you can't have uh, and make hydrogen anytime soon without natural gas. So let's celebrate what we have in this country and uh, let's understand that, you know, there's a good mix that's out there. And uh, this uh, this great country we call the hybrid of Canada on energy is makes us, uh, continues to make us an energy superpower if only we'd recognize and uh, and and take into account all of our energies, not just the ones that, uh, that tend to be more trendy and fatty. So important to get perspective on this, Dan. Thank you so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Oh, it's great to be here, Bill. Have a great week.
you too. Dan McTeague, of course, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy and a former member of parliament and always the energy critic and a guy who knows the business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.